It's wonderful to see you. I missed you last Sunday. But I worshipped uh, with the live web- webcast. And I want to say hello to everybody on the webcast. We're glad that you're joining us this morning. It was a blessing to me to be able to be elsewhere, hundreds of miles away, and tune in. And hear the thunderous response when Joe McKeever announced, We're all going to heaven. That was great, wasn't it? That was a wonderful, wonderful service. I wanted to be here in the room, standing up and saying, yes, this is great. And this morning, I am beginning a series where I want to talk about going. Next door and beyond. And how we go and why we go. Our style in the world where God has left us, not as an afterthought. He could have taken us right to heaven the minute he saved us. He could just zap us out of here, but he doesn't. He leaves us here because he has a mission for us. God himself has a mission on the planet, a continuing purpose in the world and among people. And he's inviting us to join him in that purpose. So whether we are school teachers or businessmen in the medical profession or the legal profession, wherever we might serve or be, God's purpose is also our purpose as followers of Jesus and committed believers in his name. So what I'm going to do is start this morning talking about the verbal witness and then next week about our witness of work in the world, our presence in the world, and then about representing Jesus faithfully as his followers in our world, which isn't always that easy to discern and understand. So we're going to talk about these things going forward through the month of October. Now, some of you are involved in Care Effect. About a hundred of you were out serving others on Wednesday night. And in fact, the volunteer team on Wednesdays has grown significantly over the 13 months that we've been doing Care Effect. We're entering now the 14th month, and instead of declining in our volunteer numbers, we're going up. We have more and more people who are going to the feeding stations, going to Rivard, going to the uh, tutoring centers, teaching in ESL, and there are lots of different things that are happening, and everybody has a place to connect. I want to challenge you through the month of October, okay? This is a month about going. I want to challenge you one time this month to show up at 5 o'clock on Wednesday, maybe have a meal with us, and say, here I am. I want to go and see what you're doing, and uh, just come and be part of it. Maybe we can send you to deliver one of the meals to our shut-ins or the sick among us, or maybe you can just go and sit in on an ESL class and just observe and watch, or maybe if you want to, you can go down to Central City or somewhere and serve beans or uh, put some bread on the plate and just, just be present and see what it feels like. I heard two people say this week, in fact, they were emails sent out this week, how powerful this service is in their lives and how they just wait for Wednesdays to come along because it's such an anticipation, the opportunity to go serve others in Jesus' name. 
So I want you to think about it, okay? You do not have to be a member of this church. You may worship here regularly, never having joined. But you've been thinking about what else you might do one time this month. Come on a Wednesday. Tell me or Anna or Bob Moore or Chris Smith that you're here and that you'd like to go out with one of the teams or go to ESL or whatever and we'll get you funneled to that place and you can just experience what's happening in the serving of others on Wednesday nights. It's very exciting. Now, as preparation for our service, I want us to turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 is a dynamic chapter. It is a pivotal chapter in a couple of respects. In the first part of Acts chapter 8, you have the Samaritan mission beginning among the believers in Jesus. Prior to that, they are going to Jews, and they are talking to Jews about how Jesus is the Savior. But in Acts chapter 8, a couple of them who may be a little bit uh, sort of overzealous and on their own, they head down to Samaria and start preaching. A lot of people are trusting in Jesus in Samaria. They send Peter down to check things out and say, hey, can these Samaritans really become Christians? And they find out, sure enough, the Samaritans are becoming Christians. And it's, a, it's an ethnic leap for the church of Jesus Christ. It's a cultural leap to the Samaritans that they too are part of the church. Well, in the encounter I want to read for you tonight, there is another leap. We have a man from, or, or this morning, we have a man from Ethiopia who is going to trust Jesus as Savior, and this story is recorded in verse 26. I don't know why I said tonight. You know I've been preaching at night. I preached, made 12 presentations while I was gone. And uh, so I preached a revival and did different things and and uh, I guess that's why I said it. Thank you for all your prayers for me while I was gone, by the way. You had a wonderful experience in the revival, in the conference where I, I spoke as well, and among the pastors where I led a pastor's conference. Verse 26 of Acts chapter 8 says this, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. You see that? Verse 27. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. Now, I just want to stop there and show you a map of Africa. Can you leap up forward to that map of Africa uh, on the PowerPoint? You see that? Okay. Ethiopia is on your right side. You see Ethiopia there in the Horn of Africa uh, on the right of the map. Now, if you track right across, you'll see Niger. You see Sudan, Chad, and Niger, all right? And down below Niger on the uh, western coast and that southern part of it is Accra. And I have a picture that I want to show you. Show them that picture that is next to that. This is Denise, and she's here this morning, and she's talking to an onion boy. Now, the onion boys are not from Ethiopia. They're from Niger, all right? That's two countries over. But I want you to get the sense of the leap of the gospel. The gospel is now going to Africa, 
as we read this text to an Ethiopian man who is a treasurer for the queen of Ethiopia. And Denise here is sharing the gospel with a man from Niger. Now, there are a couple things that are different about the man from Ethiopia and this young man from Niger. One of them is that the Ethiopian man is a God-fearer. And we just read that. He'd been to Jerusalem to worship. So already his heart had been plowed by the Holy Spirit from the Old Testament texts and from the worship of Israel. And he was interested in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, this man that we just saw from Niger is also interested in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he is a Muslim. And the distance in terms of faith is further than it was for the Ethiopian. And what we find in the scriptures is that often the God-fearers are trusting Jesus as Savior. In fact, the first place the missionaries of the church go is to the synagogues because they have become acquainted with the God of the Old Covenant and they are drawn toward Him. And so moving into faith in Christ is just a natural movement and we're going to see what happens in just a moment with this. In Niger, we're talking to people who have a greater distance as we go to Accra. They haven't really embraced the worship in Jerusalem and are not, in the same sense, God-fearers like this man that we see here. Verse 29 says, The Spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. They read out loud as a matter of course. Your ability to read silently is actually a pretty sophisticated skill. They were not used to reading like we are. And so when they read the text, they often read it out loud and they sounded out the words because they needed to hear them to better understand them. The ancient text did not have uh, a lot of the help that we have in our language, mostly consonants and not much punctuation. So they read it out loud. And Philip comes here and he hears this man reading the text of Isaiah the prophet. Philip says in verse 30, Do you understand what you're reading? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of Scripture. And here's the quote from Isaiah. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who's the prophet speaking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water And the eunuch said, look, here's water. By the way, there's some water right over there. See that water? (laughs) 
just like they had water there, we have water here. I'm going to baptize any candidates that are ready next Sunday. And he said, look, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. The verbal witness is often very intimidating. You know that if you mention the name of Jesus in conversation, the conversation collapses into your lap, and people wonder what you're going to do with it. Okay, what are you going to say next? But I want to just give you a little bit of uh, thoughts about the verbal witness based on this passage. And the first one is this. The verbal witness depends on the Spirit. The story here is bracketed by the Holy Spirit's activity in the life of Philip. The Spirit tells him to go attached to the chariot, and then the Spirit ends this encounter by ordering him away, maybe whisking him away. We're not sure how that uh, is to be interpreted. So the Spirit brackets the whole thing. And this is what I want to say to you. When Jesus began to talk to his disciples about their verbal witness, he said to them, do not be anxious, do not worry about what you're going to say. When you're called before kings and princes and rulers and authorities, do not be anxious about it. So that's what I want to say to you, okay? Don't be anxious about it. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is going to give you the word to say in that hour when the opportunity comes. That's why the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. We need to depend more upon the Holy Spirit. We need to know that He's at work. Are you aware of the Spirit's presence in your life? As you go through your day, are you aware that the Holy Spirit is walking with you, attending to your need, and even speaking to you? They, all through Scripture, there is a great sensitivity to the Word and the work of the Spirit of God. It's just how they go about their business. The Apostle Paul goes into prayer, and the Spirit tells him, I don't want you to go this direction, I want you to go another. That's not unusual in the Scripture. In fact, that's a common experience in the Bible, all the way beginning in Genesis. So I suggest to you that you develop a greater sensitivity to the Holy Spirit speaking to you and prompting your heart. Let me give you an illustration of what I mean, okay? You're at work, and you see somebody who is visibly upset, okay? Now, there's a risk in going to that person and saying, is there any way I can help? There's always a risk. Philip doesn't know what the man in the chariot is going to tell him. But this is what I want to suggest to you. If you look at that person and you have a love in your heart and compassion for them and your heart is moved, I want to suggest that that compassion and love could be the Spirit of God prompting you and that it would be worth your while oftentimes to just take the risk and go and initiate a conversation and say, is there any way I can help you? Do you need anything? And initiate a conversation. It was said of Jesus on numerous occasions that he looked at somebody 
and love them. He looked at them and he had compassion on them. His heart was moved about their condition and who they were. The rich young ruler came to Jesus. I don't know that to us he would have looked like a needy person. But when Jesus looked at the rich young ruler with his question about eternal life, the scripture says he looked at him and he loved him. I'm so glad Jesus looked at me and loved me. Don't you feel that way? I mean, he looked at you and he loved you. And maybe you felt unlovely. We often do. In fact, when we feel first the eyes of God upon us, it is not unusual at all for it to be at a time when we feel unlovely, out of place, out of sorts, out of step. But Jesus looks at us and loves us. Could you transfer that to your own life? Some of us want to be characterized as hard-charging individuals who get the job done. That's a very fine quality in you, that you have that determination, that you take the initiative and you go get the thing done. Some of us want to be characterized as very decisive people who process the information and make our decision and move forward. Some of us want to be characterized as very merciful people who see a need and move in to help. All of us need to be growing in love. The quality of love in you does not set aside that hard-charging, decision-making part of you. The quality of love in you enhances it. Even as you grow in your other skills... Grow in love. I did a wedding last night. Surprise, the bride and groom wanted 1 Corinthians 13 read. Which we did. I've read it a thousand times and heard it read in hundreds of weddings. But I listened to it again. And the phrase that struck me this time was, Love never fails. Love never fails. Philip, go to that chariot. You love that man? Go to that chariot. The Spirit prompts him. Jesus looks at the man and loves him. Love will not fail you. It does not guarantee that the man in the chariot will respond to you. But what love does in its never-failing aspect is it always cares, is always concerned always moves toward reconciliation. The unfailing nature of love is that it continually prompts your heart to the connection with God and others. Love never fails to do that in you. It doesn't guarantee you will never be rejected. It just guarantees you're going to keep trying. That's the nature of love. We need it more. Our verbal witness should first be connected with love, so that we look at folks and we love them. If we are not expressing love as we talk to people about Jesus, we sound like an empty barrel making noise. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 says. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, maybe you have the most eloquent presentation imaginable for the gospel, and have not love, 
I'm like an empty gong or a clanging cymbal. Your verbal witness depends on the Spirit working through you in the love of Christ. So just practice loving people. And if you're prompted in your connections with people to make a loving response to an evident need, step forward and do so. Your verbal witness involves an explanation. Now, this is an important part of the text, and I don't want you to be worried about it or afraid of it, okay? The man is reading this text from Isaiah that has perplexed all of the rabbis. They cannot agree on who this person is that Isaiah speaks about in Isaiah 53. It's not just this Ethiopian man who is perplexed. It's all of Israel. They are all perplexed. They have not yet connected the suffering servant of Isaiah, who is described in this passage, to the Son of Man in Daniel's prophecy and the Son of David in previous prophecies of Isaiah. The Son of David they understand to be the Messiah. That's why Bartimaeus cries out, Son of David, Son of David, have mercy on me. Because he believes Jesus is the Messiah and it is a messianic title. And when Jesus calls himself Son of Man, that too is a messianic title from Daniel and Ezekiel. But the suffering servant part of it hasn't ever really been connected to the other prophecies of the Messiah. They have struggled with it. They've wondered, is Isaiah talking about himself or somebody else or the nation? Who's he talking about in this passage? So the perplexity of the Ethiopian is shared by all, really all the teachers of Scripture at the time. And some of them are making guesses about who this is. Now, I want you to see one thing about the quote. The quote of Luke is from verses 7 and 8. Verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. Now, it's not in there, okay? This is Isaiah 53, 6. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And the line right after the quote says, For our transgressions he was smitten. So the substitutionary death of Christ is on both sides of this perplexing text that the Ethiopian man is looking at. And Jesus has over and over again taken this very text... as the interpretation for his own work. When he said things like, the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life as a ransom for many. It came right out of this text. The whole idea that the Son of Man would suffer was new to them. That's why Peter took Jesus aside when he said, I'm going to suffer. And he rebuked him and said, you're not going to suffer. You're not going to die. They didn't understand that the, the Messiah had to suffer and die. That comes from Isaiah. Your verbal witness explains how Jesus is the Messiah. And your verbal witness does so, first of all, by your own account of how you came to know the Lord. So just telling your story 
is a help to whoever hears because it points them to the truth that Jesus is the Messiah. Your verbal witness also helps them connect all of the old covenant with the new. This text, I tell you, it is such a powerful text that the Ethiopian is reading. And it and Philip gets up there and he explains to the Ethiopian this text is about Jesus. These recent events that happened in Jerusalem. He died on the cross. He rose again from the dead. His death was on our behalf. He explains the gospel based on this text. Now, there's an invitation here. Your verbal witness also includes an invitation. It's an explanation about how Jesus is your Savior, and it involves an invitation from the person. Sometimes we think that what we mean by verbal witness is we accost people and we interrupt them and get their attention somehow. And maybe sometimes that is the calling of God to do that. But oftentimes your verbal witness is not about accosting somebody. It's about stepping into an obvious opportunity that you have. For instance, you're at a care effect venue. And there are people milling around everywhere, and you're just standing there. Maybe you're holding your Bible, maybe not. Maybe you're just visiting with people. And somebody comes up to you, and they say, would you pray for me? <laughs> say, when somebody asks you to pray for them, that is an obvious opportunity for you to share the love of Christ with them. It is so simple. When somebody says, will you pray for me. You can say, oh, I will. I believe in the power of prayer. I asked Jesus in prayer to save my soul, change my life forever. How can I pray for you? It's the simplest transition imaginable. And almost every time that I go to the Oz or other places, Gentilly Lowe's, I'm standing around, people ask me, will you pray for me? And it's not just me. There are other people praying all along. Now, brothers and sisters, Let's tune up to this, okay? Let's open our eyes to it. Let's be sensitive. When somebody at work says, will you pray for me? Something spiritual is going on in that person's life. The Holy Spirit is preparing them for your entrance. God is at work. And it's a great place just to step in and talk to them about what Jesus has done for you. The invitation comes in so many different ways. We have desperation in our families. People call in crisis as we have had this very week. And we respond with the verbal testimony of the sufficiency of the Savior and the power of the gospel. That's what we must do and ought to do. Philip steps in there and he declares to this man, Jesus, okay? Your verbal witness focuses on Jesus, now, out of all the things I want to say to you, I want to make sure that you get this one, okay? This is Bible. This is how the early church did their witness. This is what they were up to. They focused on Jesus. It is a very good thing to invite people to church. When they come and ask you to pray for them, you have an opportunity to do more than invite them to church. You can tell them about the ministry of God in your own life. 
It's just the perfect opportunity to do so. When family members are in crisis, there is an opportunity not only to do other things, but to point them to the Savior. Your verbal witness needs to focus on Jesus. Now, brothers and sisters, this is going to be liberating to you. You don't have to know who Cain married, all right? This came up at Rivard this very week. The kids are asking, who did Cain marry? You're worried somebody's going to ask you where the dinosaurs came from, all right? And you're just not sure about some of the questions that might come up. You don't need to go to a lot of places with your verbal witness. If you'll just go to Jesus like Philip does here, that is the most powerful and perfect place for you to take your words. Just talk about Jesus. The uh, King James says that he, sp- he spoke unto them about Jesus. He preached Jesus unto them. The NIV talks about he gave them the good news. The word here is euangelion, and it's the word for good news. What Philip did with this Ethiopian who was puzzled by the text is he announced good news to him. And that's what we're doing. All over the planet, everywhere we go, we're announcing good news. What's the good news? Jesus died on the cross for you, just like Isaiah said was going to happen. He is the lamb who is sacrificed on your behalf. Jesus is the one who loves you. Jesus is the Savior. He is the promised one. He is the Messiah. Jesus is the focus of our witness. I want you to get this because it is so often missed. We think there's a religious system into which we are inviting people. And in this religious system, they will experience freedom from their sin and, and the, the, the salvation which they seek. And no religious system can do that for anybody. Did you hear that? Philip did not announce to him a religious system. A list of ten propositions to which he must assent. Ten rules to do so you can go to heaven. He did not do that. I don't want you to do that either. And if you believe that you get to heaven because you keep ten rules, you are sadly mistaken, my friend. For one thing, if there are the ten rules in the book, the Ten Commandments, you ain't keeping them. All right? So don't put your faith in that, that you're being a good person and you got the religious system that will deliver you peace of mind and get you to heaven. The more you look at that and the closer you get to it and the more examination you give to the religious system and the rules you're trying to keep, the more hopeless you're going to get in your religious activity and in your own spirit. There is no deliverance in rule keeping. It's not the good news. The rules are the bad news. Why? Because you're not keeping them and neither am I. That's the bad news. And everybody knows it when they're honest that they're not keeping the rules. They all know it already. Just ask them, they'll tell you. They feel guilty inside. They're already carrying that burden around. Philip starts at this text... And he talks to the man about Jesus. Jesus is the good news. Why? Because he is the only one who can take care of the sin problem 
that so plagues the human race and everybody in it. Jesus is the good news. This is the place to go with your witness. Share with them how you came to know Jesus. The prayer you prayed when you bowed your head and in your own despair asked for his forgiveness and gave your heart to him. Tell them what Jesus is doing for you in the walk you have now and focus on Jesus, the promised one of God, who is the only name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. You know, I look at you Sunday after Sunday, and I love you. I really do. God's given me a pastor's heart, and I love you, and I want you to have a great life. And that begins with knowing Jesus as Savior. And I just wonder if there's somebody in this room who's never trusted Jesus as Savior. You've been trusting in your denominational brand You've been trusting in some religious system. You have some rules that you're keeping, but you've never really trusted in Jesus and given your life unto him and placed all your heart in his hands. That's the good news. The good news is Jesus loves you. He forgives you as you come to him. He died on the cross for you. He rose again from the dead. He gives to those who trust him eternal life. Let's bow together. Have you ever trusted Jesus as Savior? You could do so now. Would you just say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. Does this reflect your heart? If it does, speak it to him. I know I'm a sinner. Please forgive me for my sin. Come into my heart. I receive you as Savior and Lord. God, we pray today that you would do your work in us by your Holy Spirit who is so present in this room. Lord, show us the next step we need to take and help us to take it. In Jesus' name, amen.